We are reading today James 2, 14 through 26. And it says, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, Goodbye and have a good day. Stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Now, someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have any good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this. And they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened just as the scriptures say. Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Rahab the prostitute is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. You may be seated. Thank you, Clark. We are continuing to go through the letter of James uh, as a church. We've been doing this now for, for a few weeks. And um, today we have come to the theme verse in this letter. And honestly, it's really the reason why we're preaching uh, these series of, of messages and sermons. And I have been wanting to preach this particular sermon since the final week of Galatians in May. Uh, knowing we were going to be gone for the sabbatical, I told our team, like, if I wasn't leaving, we would just jump right into James. And if I could skip ahead, I would just go right to James 2.17. Because we spent nine weeks going through the book of Galatians talking about grace, 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 grace. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to show. There's no pressure. It's what Jesus did. It's not what you did. We just beat that drum for almost three months, two and a half months. And some of you would ask me about the other side of the coin, or maybe you grew up in a religious environment or grew up in a family that uh, went to churches that didn't preach as much grace, 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 grace. And there was a lot of buts in there, but what about, and are you saying, and I'm not sure about this. And I had coffee with several of you that were saying like, I love what I'm hearing, but I'm also, I feel like disoriented. I have whiplash. Like, wait a minute, you're saying, and, and just processing all the beautiful, uh, beautiful messaging of the book of Galatians. And so I knew that I wanted us to spend some time in the book of James, because James is a book that is very practical. It's a pragmatic book about how to live the Christian life, not filled with a lot of doctrine, not filled with a lot of theology. It's just, it's a guy who is a pastor who has written this little pocket size, you know, Christian life, Christian living book. And 
this verse, chapter 2, verse 17, is kind of the, the, the linchpin. It's the whole point. If you had to summarize the whole book of James in one verse, uh, you could pick James chapter 2, uh, verse 17. And today what I want to do is I want to talk about the tension and James talks about the tension between faith and works. This, we, we've called this series, James, uh, having a faith that works. And the, the, this, these verses in this sermon is, is really about that idea of faith and, and works. Or you could say it's about the, the problem of the, or the challenge of saying you have faith in Jesus, but not living the type of life that confirms or affirms that faith. And so... Uh, we're going to get, in just a few minutes, we're going to get to, to verse 17. But I want to go ahead right up front in just the beginning and, and point out and highlight this startling statement that, that James makes when he says, faith by itself is not enough. That's what it says in verse 17. We read it. Clark, thank you. Faith by itself is not enough. This, th- th- this little phrase has been so controversial. For thousands of years, Christians have debated and disagreed. Matter of fact, you go back to the 1500s, you go back to the Reformation. Specifically, you go back to Martin Luther. And Martin Luther was so passionate about explaining and defending against the idea that people had to earn something from God that he didn't even want the book of James in the Bible. He fought passionately uh, for pastors not to even teach the book of James because he felt like that it had the potential to be incredibly confusing to people and contradict this idea of grace, this idea of faith alone in, in Jesus Christ. And I can understand why, honestly. I have always had a love-hate relationship myself with the book of James and the letter of James Because when misunderstood, this makes Christianity feel like every other thing in your life. Here James says, faith by itself is not enough. And that gives me a little bit of like, I have some scar tissue or maybe some nervous twitch or something. Because I feel like everything else in my life is constantly telling me whatever I'm doing and whatever I am and whatever I have is not enough. Maybe you feel that way. Culture and society makes us feel Like, no matter what, it's not enough. Your kids need more time. They need more activities. They need more, you know, opportunities. Don't cut that short. Don't say no. I know there are only three, but they could be an Olympian. So don't mess that up. That's supposed to be funny or maybe that's personal for us. I don't know. (laughs) You got a nice house in a nice neighborhood, but you could have more square footage. You need more connections, more exercise, lose more weight, have more stuff. Probably no more booming industry right now than the storage facility unit. (laughs) Because it's just this idea of more and more and more and more and more. And it sounds like that James is saying when you come to Jesus, you need to do more too. And maybe you felt that way. I I know a lot of us, different backgrounds, different... Uh, you know, religions or beliefs we bring with us. We all have, you know, the word God brings a lot of baggage with it. And, and so for some of you, maybe you would say, yeah, I, I'm a Christian and I feel the same way. You know, Jason, the church makes me feel the same way the school makes me feel about my kids or commercials make me feel. Now, now it feels like that I'm not doing enough for God too. 
And, and this can be used as a weapon to make people feel more insecure and more condemned. But that's not Christianity. And it's not faith in Jesus. Because what makes Christianity different from anything else in the world is the fact that it is not earned, it's received. It's not earned, it's received. And it's not based on what you did or what you do because it's based on what Jesus did. I love the way that Charles Spurgeon said it. He says, you stand before God as if you were Christ because Christ stood before God as if he were you. We say all the time around here that you get credit for Jesus's life because Jesus took credit for your life. And you're like, I know, Jason, you say this all the time. You beat this drum all the time. But the reason is because, you know, we're in here 30, 40, 60 minutes a week and, and this is probably the only place that you go and the only place where we're together with people where someone is standing up and saying, you got nothing to prove. You don't have to earn it. You can receive it. It's grace. And so, you know, what, hundreds of hours, not hundreds, but yeah, hundreds of hours in a week, you're hearing do, 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 and you come in here, and what I hope you hear week after week after week is not do, I hope you hear done. That Jesus Christ has done the work for you. You're like, but, what, but, what, but James says faith by itself is not enough. And uh, what does that mean? What does that mean? If you were to see my Bible right here, you would see there's a question mark by that verse. uh, Because when I'm reading and come across things that seem to be contradictions in the Bible, uh, I I have questions too. And what James is saying here is not that faith in Jesus is not enough to save you. He's not... He's not saying that you need faith in Jesus plus something else in order to earn salvation. Really what he's saying, if we wanted to simplify it or maybe oversimplify it, what he's saying is that claiming to have faith doesn't actually prove that you have it, is what he's saying. He's not saying that the credentials of your salvation is dependent upon believing and doing he, he's saying that it's possible to say that you have faith, to say that you believe, but not actually be able to confirm that or prove that with, with your life. You could say it like this. I, I read this recently. I thought this was a great way to put it. James is saying that a confession of faith does not prove that you have a possession of faith. He's saying that a, a confession of faith doesn't necessarily prove you have a possession of faith. And this can be a terrifying statement, and it should cause all of us in the room to pause and take inventory of our lives because James is saying that just because you say you are a Christian doesn't mean you are one. Now, I was flying back from a trip last night late, like 11.30, 45, sitting on a plane, looking at my notes, and the thought crossed my mind in the air at 11.45 last night, I'm going to make people feel terrible today. And that's not my goal. So I'm going to smile extra, extra hard today. But we can't skip past and rush past the implications of what James is saying here. This room is filled with people who, who claim to have faith. The 
person preaching, me to you right now. I, I claim to have faith and I claim to be a believer. And the point today is not for you to have fear or to live with this somehow, you know, inevitable doom in your mind that you're going to, you know, however it works, when you stand before God, you're going to be pumped because you think you're in. And God's going to be like, you're in, psych, you're out. you were never in, got you. Like, he's not, he's not playing a joke on you. So we don't want to live in fear of that. But there is cause for us to stand back and say, can my life confirm in some way what I say I believe, what I say I have, what I say is most important to me? And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to help us examine our faith and consider whether or not it's a living faith. Is it real? Is it genuine? Now I say living faith because uh, James is going to say dead, or he says dead several times in all of this. A dead faith. And so we don't want a dead faith. We want a living faith. So how do we know if it's living? How do we know if it's genuine? How do we know if it's the real thing? Well, he starts by asking us a very challenging question, very right up front, first first part of the verses that we read. Right up front, beginning of verse 14, James asked this question, what good is it? What good is it? What good is it? So you have faith, you claim to be a Christian. We could say it this way, James says, okay, so you claim to be a Christian, what good is it? That's a valid question. Maybe you're here today and you are not a believer. Maybe you're cynical. Maybe you're jaded. Maybe you got some church hurt and you're, you know, you, you've got strong opinions about religion and you're, you're maybe you're, you're opposed to it. And you would say it's pointless. It doesn't even matter. It's just some kind of moral rehab for people. I mean, it, it doesn't even matter. James is asking the same question you're, ha- you're asking or you're fighting. He's saying, what good is it? You go to church. Great. What good is that? You, you have a, you know, a bumper sticker on your car with a fish or something. What, what good is that? You raised your hand. You got baptized. You're in a small group. You serve. You give. What good is, is that? And what he's asking is, what he wants to know is, has your faith affected your life at all? Has your faith, what you say you believe, has it affected your life at all. My, my wife is a, is a graduate of the University of Louisville. Shout out to the Cards. Both teams won yesterday. So that's good. Um, but she's a graduate of the University of Louisville. And if you ask her if she's a Louisville fan, she would say yes. But if you asked her who the coach was of the football team, she would not know. If you asked her what conference they play in, she would not know. SEC, exactly, SEC. (laughs) If you asked her the last time she went to a game, she wouldn't remember. The last time she watched the game on TV, she would not remember. What you would discover about my wife is that she's not really a Louisville fan. (laughs) She claims to be a Louisville fan. But she's not really a Louisville fan. So we could say it like this. What good is it to be a Louisville fan if you never watch or go to the game or don't know anything about the team? What, what good is it to say you're a Louisville fan if you don't go to the games, watch the games, or know anything about the teams? 
I mean, you can say you're a fan, that's fine, but like, so, right? Or I was thinking about this example. Have you ever had someone who is doing a diet, like a friend who's doing a diet, like let's just pick keto, and, um, but every time you eat with them, it's like their cheat day? <laughs> you have any friends like this? Like, oh yeah, we're doing keto, and you're like, you're eating banana pudding. I don't... Or like, like mac and cheese casserole. And like, but it's got cheese, so it's, it's good. And you're, it's, it's this idea that like, yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing keto, but we could say, what good is it to do keto if every day's a cheat day? We could say it that way. You understand what I'm saying? We're saying, it's fine if it makes you feel better to, to say you're doing a program, but if you're not, actually doing the program, what good is it? What good is it to have a gym membership if you never go to the gym? Now I'm, I'm getting convicted, you know? <laughs> Keto and gym memberships. What good is it to be married if you never want to be with your spouse? Just don't get married. I mean, we could keep doing these examples, and that's really what James is asking when he asks, what good is it? What good is that faith that you have? He's saying like, I guess there's some benefit in your life for you to make a confession of faith. There's a, there's a reason, multiple reasons, why you would say, yes, I'm a Christian. But then he says, okay, step back for a moment, take an inventory of your life, and like, what difference has that made for you? What, what good is that? Think about that for a moment. Since you have become a Christian, whenever that was, for some of you it was three weeks ago, for some of you it was... 30 years ago. But since you have become a Christian, what good has it been for your life and for the people around you? What has it accomplished? How has it affected your life? Since you've become a Christian, what could you point to and say, see, my faith in Jesus compelled me to do that. Now, this, is, this, is, uh, this can be tricky. Because all of us are born with certain personalities and, and, and um, uh, certain things that we just have natural inclinations for. And so some of you, like, before you ever met Jesus, you were really helpful and really loving and caring and very generous. And these were qualities about you before you ever put your faith in Jesus Christ. And so, yeah, we could stand back and say, well, I'm a Christian and I'm very helpful and, and I'm generous and, and I'm kind, but you were that before you met Jesus. So what could you point to and say, if it wasn't for my faith in Jesus, I would not be doing this. This is, this is the, the compelling reason, the fuel, the driver that, that points to, um, that, 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 brings these things to happen in my life. What good is it, James says? So you're an employee who has a faith in Jesus. What good is it? If I were to ask your boss, like, oh, so you, ha you hired a Christian. What good is that? Is it any good? You're a millionaire who's a Christian. Fantastic. What good is that? How does that, what are the implications of that? You're a business owner who's a Christian. You're a politician who's a Christian. Fantastic. But what good is it? What are the implications? What, what, what is your, what's coming out of your life because of your faith in 
in Jesus compared to someone who doesn't claim to have a faith in Jesus. Several years ago, I was trying to remember when this was. I mean, it had to be at least eight or nine years ago because of some of the people in the story. But after church on a Sunday, we went to Elno Paul. There was a group of us, I don't know, 10 or 15 of us right around the corner. And we were sitting in that back room. And somehow, I don't know, they were talking about some kind of sports or being athletic or physical or something. I don't know what it was. And um, we was talking about running. And somebody was talking about how fast they could run a mile. And it was kind of like, name that tune. Like, I can do it in this many notes. It's like, well, I can run this mile and I can run this mile. And I don't know what compelled me, but I said, I could run a six-minute mile. That's so funny. They were like, no, you couldn't run a I was like, yeah, I can run a, I ran a six-minute mile multiple times in school. I was on track. I ran long distance in track. And I, yeah, I can run a six-minute mile. Like, I was confused as to why there was any confusion about my claim of running a six-minute mile. Now, I hadn't actually run since high school. <laughs> but I remembered last time I ran, I was pretty good. And, uh, and so... The guys who were with me said, let's go do it. Let's go run. I want to see. And I was like, fine, I can do that. Like, so we picked a park. And I was like, all right, I'll meet you there, 5 o'clock tonight. And, and I'll, like, of course, like, this is not even going to be hard. And so um, we go to the park. And uh, I don't even remember what park it was. But I just remember it was three laps around the track was a mile. And uh, I thought, here's what I'll do. I will run the first lap as fast as humanly possible. Like someone's chasing me with a knife. I'm going to run as fast as I can, just set an amazing pace. And then I'm going to struggle probably coming home, but I'll be so far ahead of my pace that I'll be good. This is what I was thinking. So they say go, and man, I just take off. And I am running, I mean, gliding through the air. It's a beautiful thing. And I'm coming around the last turn of the first lap. And something from brain to body said, you haven't run in 15 years. And I went into like a full body cramp. Like I was, I, there were muscles I didn't even know I had like under your armpit. Did you know you have a muscle there? Cramping. I'm talking, I mean, everywhere. I don't mean inappropriate, but there was cramps from knees up, okay? And I kind of locked up and I just stopped running. Like I, I just stopped. I didn't even make it one lap in this endeavor to run a six-minute mile. And it was uh, an infamous experience. Here's my point. It's easy to say stuff and honestly believe that it's true. My point is not that you are intentionally being a hypocrite. My point is that I believe you believe it. James is not saying that you're running a con that you have no interest in following Jesus, that you have no interest in having faith. James is saying, you believe that you do. But at some point, there has to be, in moments in your life, there have to be these times where you're like, you've been talking. Let's pick a park. And let's see. And until I turned that corner and cramped under my armpits... I believed with all of my heart that I was crossing that finish line under six minutes. But after I laid on the ground for a while, I realized what was true. I cannot run a six-minute mile. I could not even complete a mile. 
And the challenging truth for those of us in the room is that there are things about our life that we believe are true, but if we actually had to in some way judge whether or not they are true, we would find out they're not true. A politician who says they think public school is incredibly valuable and on the rise, but sends their kids to private school, right? Someone who says that giving generously to charities is important, but their tax returns show they give nothing. Someone who says their family is the most important to them, but when you look at their schedule, they're never home. There are times when we believe that it's true. We're not faking it. We're not being hypocritical. We're not running a con. We just believe that it's true. But there come these moments where James would say, belief is not enough. Faith that you can run a six-minute mile is not enough. You have to actually purchase tennis shoes and go run that, that mile. The proof is in the action. Not proving it to God, not even proving it to the people who are critical of you, but confirming that you possess what you actually confess. Now, here's the challenge in talking about a topic like this is that for most of us, immediately when you hear someone say faith isn't enough, there's something inside of you that gravitates towards this message in in a way that's associated with guilt and condemnation. We're so used to, to guilt and shame, we put our head down and we feel this immediate pressure to prove something. You're right. You're right. You know what? I'm not, I'm not, I, I got, I got to, I do better, you know, and I'll be here more and I'll, I'll read my Bible more and I'll, pr- you're right. I'm not, I'm not. We, we immediately go into this guilt, shame, condemnation vibe. And we feel like we've got to prove something. But, but please hear me. James is not saying you have to earn God's love. Please hear that. He's not saying you have to earn God's love. He's saying that once you believe you have God's love and you're wholly accepted by God, it fundamentally changes the way that your life operates. That a living tree doesn't have to work to produce fruit. It grows fruit. But a dead tree cannot grow no matter what you do. A dead tree cannot grow. A living faith will produce action. It will. I want to show you an image um, that I, I, I adapted a little bit, but it's from a pastor in New York called Rich Viadas. He, he wrote an amazing book called uh, The Deeply Formed Life that I would highly recommend. Um, but I changed some of the language, but the gist is still the same. Uh, Rich used this, this chart to really, I think, beautifully explain kind of where we find ourselves at any different season in life. And it, you'll notice that the, the, vertical, the vertical axis there is high and low acceptance. And what we mean by acceptance is acceptance from God. You believe you're loved by God, wholly accepted by God, not based on what you do, but based on what Jesus did. That when Jesus looks at you, he sees you as a beauty. You cannot mess it up. You get credit for the life of Jesus. You are wholly accepted by God. High acceptance would be Believing that with all your heart, low acceptance would be not believing that. And then the horizontal axis uh, is, is obedience. It's action. It's, you know, it's, it's what your life looks like on any given day. It's the things that you do and the things that you don't do. And so if you take that, 
that, that axis of acceptance and that axis of obedience, you really kind of have four quadrants that all of us fall into in different seasons of our life. So if you are high acceptance, hey, God loves me. I can't mess it up. It's all good. But low obedience, high acceptance, doesn't matter what I do. Then really you're just kind of socially religious. It's a, very, it's a view of grace that's very cheap. It's a very, very cheap view of grace. You know, these are, th- this happens all the time when I meet people on the golf course. It happened this week. And they said, you know, they always say, what do you do? And I, I don't even want to tell them. Because then they apologize for all the cursing. And then they tell me a story about their uncle who was a pastor. And it's just like they feel like they've got to, you know, make up for 20 years of whatever. And, uh, but always, you know, they always want to like, con- they, we just met. And they just want to confirm that they got saved. And they're like seven at VBS. Like they just want me to know, you know. And in some form or fashion, they'll say like, hey, me and the big man are good. You know, we got that worked out. And really what they're saying is like, I know I'm good, but I don't, it doesn't really matter what I do. And there are seasons in life where all of us struggle with this. And so this is kind of social religious. Now, the opposite is that you're not interested in obeying God, but you also don't really believe that you're accepted by God. We would just classify this as an unbeliever. This is somebody who hasn't understood the gospel, doesn't believe the gospel, doesn't feel like they need to have the gospel, Jesus, the cross. This is somebody who's just disinterested in God. It's pretty self-explanatory. Now, if you go to the other side and you are low acceptance, I don't want to mess it up. I don't want God to be disappointed in me. I don't want God to feel like I was a lost cause. I got to earn it. I got to show it. And I'm going to do that through being awesome and never making a mistake. So if you're high obedience and low acceptance, that's, that's like self-righteousness, hypocrisy, you know, very religious, fear-based religion. Because I don't believe I'm accepted by God, I'm going to make sure to be the kind of person that God would want to love. And so you hate yourself and you hate everybody else around you. These, if you've had a bad experience with Christianity because jer- Christians were jerks and you know, just hypocritical and all that. It, it's because you were, you were spending time with people who were low acceptance, high obedience. Because someone convinced them of that. And there are seasons in our life where all of us feel this way. But the goal and what we want is we want to be in that top right. We want to be high acceptance. And James would say high obedience. That we don't believe that it's our obedience that defines our acceptance. We believe that we are accepted by God. And because we are accepted by God, we want to honor him. And we lovingly, sacrificially lay down our life because we know we are wholly accepted by God. Now listen, if you're in the room today or you're watching online or listening to this at a later time and you do not believe that you are wholly accepted by God, that you get credit for Jesus' life, there is no way possible for you to obey God with pure motives. Just so you know, it's not possible. That if you don't believe you're accepted by God, every good thing you've ever done is not, it was not for God, it was for yourself. It was you trying to quiet the conscience. It was you trying to prove your worth. It was you trying to feel lovable. You can only do something for God and do something for the right reasons once you believe that you don't have to because you're wholly accepted by God. Wholly accepted by God. I I told you I was out of town this week and I had to go uh, help a friend with something and I knew I was leaving town, and I got four kids under the age of 13, and it's stressful on Andrea. 
And early on in our marriage, I probably missed the opportunity to do this because I was thinking like, hey, I'm out of here, you know. But I was thinking, I want to, like, I need to probably do some laundry, fold some laundry. I can make a couple things, put it in the fridge for her. Let me clean up the kitchen, clean up the living room. Like, I took a couple hours before I left because I wanted to set her up to succeed. Now, she did not call me and say, no, you're leaving town. So let me tell you right now, you better not leave that living room messed up. And that kitchen, you better do a load of dishes. If I get home and you haven't done any laundry, of course not. Because I love her and because I know she loves me and because I want what's best for her and because I believe she wants what's best for me. The desire in my heart, it wasn't to prove something to her or to have her feel differently about me. It was because of what I know to be true about our relationship that my actions were, I was compelled by love. So how can we know whether or not our faith is real? If we have this living faith, we don't have much time left, but I'm just going to kind of quickly move through these because he, he tells us in these verses, James shows us how we can know we have a living faith. And he does it in a couple of ways. First, he shows us what real faith is not, what living faith is not. And then he shows us what it looks like. And then he shows us what it feels like. So if you want to kind of outline this, he shows us what, Living faith is not. Then he shows us what living faith looks like, and then he shows us what living faith feels like. And so let me give these to you. Look at these with me. First, we learn what living faith isn't. Verse 15, he says, suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say goodbye, and you have a good day, and you stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? The first thing we learn is that faith is not just sentimental. Faith is sentimental. But it's not just sentimental. For a lot of people, Christianity is mainly about kindness or caring. Being the kind of person who says, God bless you, or I'll pray for you, or it's very emotional, a lot of tears. And none of those things are bad and wrong in of themselves. But James is saying here, it can't just be sentimental. It has to be practical. It has to be practical. And the implications of this are huge because this is not only about helping poor people, this is not saying that all social workers go to heaven. This is not saying that uh, working at a soup kitchen gets you in. This is, this is about the practical effects of Christianity, how, how we work, how we manage money, how we set our schedule. And we have to be careful that we don't just allow our faith to be about kindness and tenderness and nostalgia it has to have a practical value, making a practical difference in the immediate world around us. And so if it's just this kind of feel-good, well-intentioned thing, we have to ask the Holy Spirit to help us recognize where our, our faith in Jesus is not having any practical value or practical change in our life. Like we say that Jesus changes your life, but like has it even changed your schedule? Right? Right? Let me give you another one. He says, uh, not only is it not just sentimental, but faith is not just intellectual. Look at verse 19. He says, you say you have faith. You believe there's one God. Good for you. I love that. He's like just being a little bit, you know. Oh, good for you, bud. Even the demons believe this. This is, this is crazy. James is saying that demons have good theology, good doctrine. They know the truth. They know the truth. They believe in God. They know who Jesus is. The only difference is they don't trust him. They believe that God 
is God. And they know that he is the creator. And they, know, and they believe Jesus is God. They just don't trust him. And for a lot of people, Christianity become, can become only about information and doctrine and theology and books. But just because you know the right information doesn't mean you have real faith. And I love that James hits both sides of this because culture would emphasize helping people. Who really cares what you believe? Like, it doesn't even matter what religion you are, whatever. Let's just be nicer. Let's be kinder. Let's take care of people. All roads kind of lead to, you know, us being better people. It doesn't matter. But listen, it does matter. James is not saying it doesn't matter what you believe. For Christians, our entire motivation for helping people or loving people is based on our beliefs. If you don't, if you don't believe in the value of a soul, you don't believe in eternity, stop wasting your time and your money helping people. We're just bodies, and when we die, we'll be dirt. Please stop coming to church. Stop wasting your time trying to feel better about yourself. If you don't believe in God, in Jesus, in eternity, in the value of a person, it doesn't matter what you do. Be selfish. Enjoy as much of your life as you can, because when you die, it's over. It's ridiculous to think that what we believe isn't important. What matters is what we do. What we believe determines what we do. You can't just be a helping the poor Christian or a really smart Christian. It's not, it's not either or. Let me give you one more thing. Real faith is not. Real faith is not fear-based. He says about the demons, he says, they know the truth and they tremble in terror. In other words, he says, once you know the truth about God, but you don't believe in him, you cannot help but live a fearful life, a really superstitious life. Car trouble, that's God getting back. Cancer, that's God getting back. Kids trouble at school, that's God getting back. I can't tell you how many people I talk to that have been out of church a while. And when we talk, they have connected the dots in some way that, you know, God is ruining their life because they left church when they were 24. That's living in terror. That's trembling in terror. And it's easy for our entire motivation to be about not upsetting God. But real faith is not about upsetting God or being afraid you're going to upset God. Remember, high acceptance, high obedience. But if, but if there's not a belief in the acceptance of God... Everything you do will be tremblings of terror. I got to go to church. I got to help that person. I can't get mad. I got to forgive. I've got to give that money. I don't want to upset God. That's low acceptance. Trying to obey out of low acceptance. So that's what real faith is not. What, what is living real faith? What does it look like according to Verse 21, it looks like something that Abraham did. Maybe you're familiar with this story. It's in Genesis 22. We don't have time to read the whole chapter. I want to just give you the first few verses. This is what it says. It says, sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. It's a different sermon. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied. Here I am. Take your son, your only son. Yes, Isaac, whom you love so much. If you know this story, they had been waiting for uh, their whole life, but even 20 plus years since God had promised them a son. He was 99, or she was 99. Anyway, they were almost 100 years old. 
They finally get a son, and God says, take your son, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah, up on Mount Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. And the next morning, Abraham got up early, saddled his donkey, and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place that God had told him about. What does real faith look like? It looks like loving sacrifice. This is what discipleship is, up at that upper right, high acceptance, high obedience. It's loving sacrifice, costly obedience, laying down your life, gladly laying down your life. Doesn't mean there's not tension, doesn't mean there's not struggle. But James specifically uses this example of Abraham to show us how faith and action work together. The only way Abraham could take his son to sacrifice that he loved so much was to believe that he was wholly loved, accepted by God. It was out of that trust and faith in God that, that he was able to obey. I love the way Eugene Peterson specifically talks about the story, this part of the story of Abraham. And he really kind of keys in on this idea of Mount Moriah. This was so impactful for me when I read it. But Eugene Peterson says that a relationship with Jesus, following God, is a daily trip to Mount Moriah. It was beautiful. He said, if you want to follow Jesus, you wake up every day and you take the things that you want the most in your life and you take the things that you value the most in your life. You take your dreams, you take your desires, you take your hurts. You load up everything that you care about the most and you head to Mount Moriah. And you get up there and you lay it on the altar. So when's the last time you took a trip to Moriah? When's the last time you took a trip up to the top of the mountain? Because it's worth taking an inventory of your life and saying, I believe that I have faith. I confess that I have faith. I have faith in Jesus. I have trust in Jesus. But there comes these points all along our journey where he he asks us to lay down the thing that we value the most. And so when's the, last, when's the last time you felt like, not because you had to, not low, low acceptance, high obedience, not fear, but when's the last time you felt like you trusted Jesus enough, you were compelled by the love and acceptance of God enough, to lay down the things in your life that feel the most valuable and important to you. Let me give you one more. We're going we're gonna to end. He, he told us what it's not. It's not just sentimental. It's not just um, informational or intellectual. It's not fear-based. He told us what it, what it looks like. It's, it's a loving sacrifice. And then finally he tells us what it feels like in verse 23. He says, faith feels like friendship with God. Faith feels like friendship with God. Abraham believed God, he said, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. Not because of the trip, not because of the having the knife, not because of the, which by the way, if you don't know that story, he didn't actually have to sacrifice his son. I was like, oh, better clarify that. If you've never read that story, God was just wanting to see what was in his heart. He wanted to see if Abraham possessed the faith that he confessed. But the Bible doesn't say that it was counted to him as righteousness because he followed through. It says because of his faith, he was even called the friend of God. The only way you ever feel like a friend of God is high acceptance. High acceptance. 
high obedience. I love this because it's tempting to think that real faith feels like being a gladiator. You know? A lot of war metaphors, putting on the full armor of God, going to the gates of hell. Or it feels like, you know, being a, having real faith is like slaying a dragon, wrestling not against flesh and blood, against principalities and rulers of darkness. And I love that those things are true. But I love that James here says, you want to know what it feels like to, to know that you have a living faith? It feels like friendship with God. You know, I have a 13-year-old daughter, Sadie, who um, loves when I talk about her from the stage. <laughs> but uh, she's always been just like social butterfly and lots of friends. And, and so, you know, I'll come downstairs sometimes or come home and like I don't realize she's on a FaceTime, like a group FaceTime. I'm glad I'm like wearing a shirt around the house because like she's just in the kitchen and I hear somebody talking and I'm like, who's here? She's like, oh, I'm FaceTiming with Gray. Or, hey, I'm here with Allie. I'm like, you got to give me a heads up, like, you know? And, um, you know, we've reached the age where she doesn't want to hang out with us on the weekends anymore. She's hanging out with my friends. Where are you going? We don't know. Who's driving? We don't know. When are you coming home? We don't know. Because it doesn't matter. I just want to be with my friends. I just want to be with my friends. And James says, that's what real faith feels like. That there's this friendship with God. And if you've ever had a friend that you felt like you had to prove yourself to, you know that either that relationship is exhausting or you give up on it and you quit. But those friends that it feels like you get the remote when you come over, or you can have the recliner, or you can drink the last milk in the fridge. Th those are the ones where you just, it just, you, it's not something you work for, but you cherish it and you give your best to it. You don't have to earn it. You rest in it. You rest in it. And James says, that is what living faith looks like. High acceptance and high obedience. High acceptance, high obedience. Um, God said to Abraham, he said, uh, he said, now I know that you love me because you are willing to sacrifice your only son. And we, as Christians now living after Jesus, Abraham didn't know this, but we know this, that we can say the exact same thing back to God. Now I know you love me because you are willing to sacrifice your only son. Now I know I'm accepted. I forget it sometimes. I don't believe it sometimes. But I remember you, you sacrificed your only son. Now I know that you love me. You sacrificed your only son. I failed today, God, but I remember you love me because you sacrificed your only son. I'm not who I need to be, but I can remember you, you love me because you sacrificed your one and only son. And so my prayer for us today is that not that we would build better lists of behavior, but that we would believe more that we are wholly accepted by God, loved, seen as a beauty, not because of what we do, 
And we don't want to come into this place, you know, for 60 minutes a week after spending hundreds of hours a week telling people, hearing people say, do, 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 do. We want, we want to come in here and we want to rest in the presence and the grace of God. And we don't want to hear do, we want to hear done. Done. Because Jesus did the work. And if you love me that much, that you would sacrifice and give up the thing you love the most, then every day, God, what I'm going to do is I'm going to load up and I'm going to take another trip to the top of Mount Moriah. And I'm going to lay down all the things that mean the most to me because I know that I mean the most to you. Just a moment, we're going to take communion together. The band's going to lead us in a, in a hymn. And uh, the chorus of that hymn says, uh, it's the power of the cross that Christ became sin for us, took my shame, or took my place, bore my shame. It's the power of the cross. It's not the power of your discipline. It's not the power of your schedule. It's not the power of your efficiency. It's the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so as that's happening, you're going to have the opportunity to take communion. And during that time, I would love for us to just be able to, to sit in the loving presence of God and to get through that moment and, and, and be done with that moment feeling more accepted by him, more loved by him. I'm going to do our congregational prayer together. When you came in, you were given a worship guide. You can grab that. We do this for you each week so you can take this with you and fit this into the rhythms of your day and your week. We want to go ahead and give you a vocabulary. We're trying to help that prayer time get started for you and give you a vocabulary in this conversation with God, this friendship with God. So I'm going to start this prayer and down at the very bottom where it's in bold, you can join me. Oh, Lord, I'm constantly bombarded by the pressure to accomplish greatness to achieve mastery, to perfect efficiency, to prove my worth by my contribution to society. As my soul is compromised, I bring that pressure into my relationship with you, feeling as if I have to earn your love and validate your sacrifice. In my sinfulness and selfishness, I serve others only to serve myself. I love only to feel lovable. Every good deed I attempt is cloaked by a desire to prove I am worthy of your grace because I do not believe I am completely and utterly accepted by you. God, you created good works for me to do before my life began, so let your love and grace saturate my soul so completely until dread becomes desire, guilt becomes grace, and obligations become opportunities to express my faith. Will you join me? Oh, Lord, do not let me work for your love, but rather from your love. Not to be accepted, but rather because I'm accepted. Give me a faith that does not simply move my heart, but moves my hands and feet too. Amen.